Well, hello. Hey, hey. Hey. Hope everybody had a great Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. If you're listening to this and you like it, I'm going to say it again. Tell somebody about it. You guys are the reason this thing keeps growing, so keep it going. And that rhymed. Fuck yeah. Yeah. So, anyways, our guest today, Kevin. We got Dr- Justin Crevier. Uh, he is a former officer in the Marine Corps. He worked for the, I'll say, Defense Department. I always forget. I think it was the Defense Department. State Department. State Department. Yeah, that's what it was. Yeah, I worked in the embassies in uh, Azerbaijan. He was a diplomat. Diplomat, yep. Did a lot of great work. And he talks pretty good in the depth. So, today in the podcast about that. Mm-hmm. And right now, he's a student in the physics program, double majoring. Um, he's doing geophysics and astro emphasis, I think, as well. And pretty sweet guy. Yeah. Yeah. It was pretty, pretty good talk with him. He yeah. talked about some stuff that I had no idea was even going on. So yeah. Con- conflicts in the Middle East, stuff like that. It was kind of kind of cool. So, we hope you guys enjoy it. And yeah, check out our Instagram, Mission Prep Podcast. We have Facebook, we have Twitter, all that good stuff as well. Yeah, DM us, send nudes, whatever you want. Yeah, get on there, let us know what's up, say hi. <laughs> we probably won't respond to you, but you can say <laughs> hi anyways. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know, maybe we'll respond. But yeah, that's it. So I guess we can get in the episode. Mm-hmm. Okay then, bye. I mean, hi. <laughs> on there and i know people like that guy's just playing some video game you know yeah <laughs> that's how i feel like too, i'm like on my laptop and my videos over here yeah mm-hmm. yeah so yeah we're we're rolling cool so we have justin crevier is it crevier that's good crevier okay is that french yeah french canadian yeah, yeah. nice is that where, where you were born new york city but your family's mostly from do you ever see last of the mohicans uh-huh so the French guys running around the woods with like these long stocking caps with with like the Iroquois, those are my ancestors. And oh, then no some way. of the Iroquois and stuff, yeah. Oh, that's yeah. awesome. That's crazy to know that. So uh so you did you grew up in New York City as like through high school and everything too? Um, this is one of those weird things. I, I was born in New York City, um, and then we moved after maybe a couple of years. My dad was in um he was like an international banker, which is not like Sounds probably super glamorous, but uh, it was just a lot of being out in the office. And we lived uh, overseas till, uh, I mean, I came back to the States maybe three times before I turned 15. Wow. And then I came back for high school and uh, enlisted in the Marine Corps. So, but spent that 14, 15 years in between, uh, you know, in Europe and the Middle East. So We're at Middle East and Europe. Where were you at? Um, we lived. Uh, we lived in London. So in the... In the early to mid seventies, we were in London, and then in the late seventies, early eighties, we moved to uh, to Egypt. We had a year in Switzerland there, sometime and a little bit of time in Saudi Arabia. But he was um, he was getting Chase Manhattan Bank like branches mm-hmm. started in um, in Egypt and Saudi Arabia, and believe it or not, in Iran, uh, because up until nineteen seventy nine, the revolution. Uh, Saudi Arabia, Iran, you know, were not at each other's throats and Iran and Israel were 
we're pretty close. Shit, that's so. crazy. So how many so how many languages have you created at this point then? Well, I, I grew up speaking French, picked up a bit of Arabic, and then not so much after that. But then when I when I joined the Foreign Service, they uh, they had me go back and learn a couple of languages at what's called like the Foreign um, Foreign Service Institute. Which I think for for DOD, I don't know if it's still. They have like a language institute in Monterey, California, where you go learn like you know Bulgarian or whatever. And we have, we have the same thing for the State Department in uh, just south of Washington D.C. in Arlington, Virginia. So, what's that like? Like you as a kid, you're living in all these different places. How does like schooling and stuff work? That was kind of a mess, to be honest. Like uh, I think we spent maybe five years in Egypt. Mm-hmm. So we moved halfway through the school year, number one, which sucked. That was in like probably fifth grade, fourth grade. Mm-hmm. So I finished that year up at a French Catholic school. Yeah. And then I went to uh, the Cairo American College, which is like just a big U.S. high school or U.S. you know middle and high school for like two years. Mm-hmm. And I kind of screwed off a lot there and I needed a kick in the ass. So my dad sent me to the British International School, which is like downtown Cairo, for the last year, year and a half. Wow. Um, yeah, but you know, you're, so you're in one place and it's, um, you know, mandatory Bible study and boys don't talk to girls. I mean, this is a long time ago. Yeah. But, and then you go to the American system, it's completely different and it's all about sports and, you know, whatever mm-hmm. Star Wars just came out or shit like that. <laughs> and then you go to the British system, which is, you know, you ever you ever seen like uh, the video for that Pink Floyd song? Oh shit! Another brick in the wall. Yep. Yeah, yep. it was it was a bit like that. It was sit down, you stupid little boy, and mm-hmm. shut up until you're spoken to. You know, now that works until the kids get as big as the teachers, and then they yeah. get to like you know, yeah. It, but <laughs> so, so in was there other American kids and stuff where you were going? Yeah, yeah, yeah uh, mostly. Yeah. <clears throat> so kind of, you guys had some similar. Things going on in life, then. Yeah, that's yeah, kind of segregated. Then I can't even imagine. I mean, growing up here my whole life, I can't even imagine being all over the world as a child. It it, it had a lot of <laughs> pros and cons, but mm-hmm. the, the pros you realize later down the line. You know, mm-hmm. you get maybe a better perspective on things and stuff. Uh, cons could be, you know, some of it you were a lot more on the edge than you realized. I guess. Um, like, I was trying to think, when did I first get into sort of astronomy and planetary science and all that? When did that really first interest me? And I realized when I was in when I was in fifth grade, I missed um, about a third of the school year because I had typhoid. It was either typhoid or it was amoebic dysentery. Now, that's kill-your-ass disease. That mm-hmm. isn't, you know, yeah. I feel bad. I'm not going to school this week. Yeah. And this is 1977, 78. We're in Egypt. They're not going to fly me anywhere because mm-hmm. I'm possibly infectious. So you're laying in bed all day, you know, and, and my, my dad or my brother or somebody brought me a bunch of books from the library because they were doing stars and planets. Mm-hmm. So it was reading about that that got my mind off the fact, even though I'm just a fifth grader, you realize, you know, I'm, I'm potentially kind of screwed. Yeah. You know? Yeah. <laughs> wow. Um, and uh, so you have things like that, and you don't really realize how – weird that is compared to most people's lives until later yeah yeah you have nothing to compare it to yeah yeah seriously no so (laughs) something i didn't i didn't know that you we kind of mentioned earlier you were actually enlisted in the marines before you went commissioned yeah yeah i um so my my dad 
we were still living in Egypt. Um, my dad wanted us to get onto a better track to go to U.S. colleges because the British system's kind of different and stuff. Okay. So we wound up going to, I don't know if you guys, this is really an East Coast thing. You know, you know what prep schools are? Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. Like Exeter and Andover. Like my brother went to Exeter and I went to one that was like almost as good. And believe me, we, we couldn't afford this level of it. A lot of it was like a, a benefit that my dad had. So I went to one of those. I went to prep school. I skipped ninth grade going into prep school. Mm-hmm. So I was up to my eyeballs in just trying to handle all the workload. Um, and this is my first time really being around like American sports. Because at the American school in Egypt, you had wrestling and basketball, but you didn't really have like football. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Um, so I'm trying to make like JV football as a, you know, 160 pound kid. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> probably, probably <laughs> hard to relate with the other kids because yeah. they, yeah. they know all that stuff and you yeah. have no reference of it. That's kind of crazy. Yeah. And well, that, those kind of schools are, are feeder schools for the Ivy League. They're a bit different now. I think they've, they've tried to broaden their base. So it's not just a bunch of like, Rich kids, but right. um, there's usually one kid every year, though, who kind of says, screw it, and enlists. And in my case, like, I didn't do really well in high school at all. Um, and I, I think I read, I don't know if you guys know who James Webb is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I read one of the books he'd written. I think it was probably Fields of Fire about Vietnam. Oh. And remember, Vietnam was was 10 years ago at this point, eight years ago that mm-hmm. we pulled out. And, and I read this, I'm like, you know, I, I don't want to be like most of the kids I'm in high school with i want to be more like these guys and yeah that's a kind of a romanticized view yeah yeah but um and so i enlisted the marine corps and i enlisted under something called uh i'm sure the army has you you were in the army too i wasn't i'm, I'm not oh, a veteran oh, okay um i i just because I, I think the codes are the same and all that you go in and you're like like mine was guaranteed like combat arms you know okay. which was what a lot of the young guys with maybe not so much planning skills kind of go into um and so I went in the infantry, you know, and I, and I, I, it was a four year kind of growing up and, and, and normalizing a lot with the U.S., mm-hmm. you know, where, yeah, where you can. Yeah. You know, the, the army is pretty much the same. I don't want to disrespect our, uh, our, uh, mortarmen out there or anything. Like when you go into this infantryman in your army, you get the 30th AG at Fort Benning. And when they call your roster to go to like get your company. Every time, like, it happened, which is funny because I was in 30th AG for two fucking weeks because they had too many people in there at one time. Oh, yeah. And when they called the roster that I was supposed to be on initially for that first week to go out, they're like, yep, you guys are all mortarmen now. And I just saw a whole room of guys just get depressed because you don't, you sign for more. You sign for infantry and then they'll make you mortarmen or line guys, right? And so at that point, I was like, well, this was now worth having to stay here for another fucking week. Not to be a mortarman. Yeah. You know, so... You know, I love my, my, some of my best friends are Mortarman, especially Mario Yabara, but I didn't want to be one. <laughs> but yeah, so yeah, pretty much the same thing as going like Marines. Yeah, kind of, you know. It's a, it's, it's a culture shock. I mean, it, it yeah. really is. But I think kind of going back to what you guys are bringing up, like one thing I never had growing up was um, you got a lot of experiences, like, like when you're growing up in one place, maybe that kind of builds you up. And that cement where you think you sit with different people or different groups of people. Yeah. I never really had that. Yeah. So there's a certain kind of confidence that I think I never really got. But on the other hand, um, I've always been able to talk to or deal with uh, really broad, really different groups of people. I could imagine because um, you've been around so many different yeah. Yeah, I mean, people. 
but I, I don't have like, I've never had like the conviction that a lot of people have. Yeah. I know for sure this is right. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that comes, I think, from having, in a lot of ways, from having been in one place and had a set of experiences that, that reinforce that point of view. Yeah. Yeah. You know? And, yeah. um, it's a good thing and it's a bad thing, I think, from, from my end, not yeah. having that. But, um, when, when you joined the Marines, was there any, Thing going on at the time when you joined because you said Vietnam had wrapped up before that and no it was uh, it was 1985 I was 17 my dad was like no don't go in the Marine Corps because he wanted me to go to college he's like here I'll pay for you to go to like Europe on a backpacking trip this summer and you know <laughs> and all this and you know because I'd gotten into like a couple of state universities which is fine with me but he, he wanted me to do more or whatever um mm-hmm. and uh the Marine Corps was kind of still in its Vietnam hangover I guess is a good way to put it um yeah and, and they had just, like, I wound up being uh, our school of infantry where, you know, you go and learn how to be a machine gun or whatever, um, was the same base, place called Camp Geiger in North Carolina, that the unit that had just been hit in the Marine, in the, in the Marine barracks bombing in Beirut oh. was based out of. We only had, like, 24 infantry battalions, you know, and most of those on the west coast of Hawaii. But this one, so you have all these, like, E2, E3s, you know, Lance Corporal's PFCs were, like, three rows of ribbons and combat action stuff and all that, mm-hmm. um, who just had these horrible attitudes, as you could imagine, because they mm-hmm. just went through some some really dirty shit that nothing yeah. really ever got done about. Yeah. And then a lot of the NCOs and staff NCOs were um, were Vietnam veterans. Okay. And if you've ever seen – I use movies a lot because I think it's an easy common ground yeah. for it, but if you've ever seen the movie Full Metal Jacket? Oh, yeah. yeah. So the guys are on patrol, you know, second half of the movie in, in, in Da Nang or whatever – and I looked at them and I said, holy shit, all that gear they're wearing is all the gear we wore when I went in. Like, not boot camp, we had to jump, but like, my first assignment is like a, you know, a PFC, Lance Corporal, whatever. Those old helmets with the, like, the cork liner, <laughs> yeah. you know, and then the, the, the flak jackets, it's got those thin little plates. Uh-huh. And then on top, it's like, I don't know, paper mache or something. M16A1s. I was a machine gun, but it was the M60 without, it was, the, it was one version older than what Rambo uses in the Rambo movie. The <laughs> okay, movie. yeah, yeah. You know, it was literally the Vietnam era one. Um, yeah. You know, and we always had crazy personnel shortages. You know, there, there was there was one point where I think I had to go. I was the only guy there in the machine gun section. And, and the TO is 6M60s and, you know, barrel bags and all that. And I had to check all this shit out from the armory and spend all day cleaning it. You yeah. know, but... That's kind of where we were, though. Yeah. And then they made a huge turnaround. Yeah, my, my dad was in the Marine Corps towards the tail end of Vietnam. Oh, yeah. He's in his mid to late 60s now. Yeah. And as far as I know, I don't think he ever went to Vietnam. If he has, he doesn't really say yeah, much he, about he, it. He graduated same year my dad did, 72. Yeah. yeah. So after 72, I think they were really pulling back. Because I, yeah. I know he's talked about the time he was stationed in Hawaii. And he said, he's like, you know, it was real rough. I was pretty much paid to be a lifeguard. Yeah. But he, but I know he, he was a, like he, he has his sniper. He was sniper qualified. Qualified yeah. and all that, which I, I don't know how much that really means. But as far as I know, he didn't end up going to Vietnam. I know for sure Hawaii yeah. and it, it was probably the tail end of Vietnam. Mm-hmm. And he, I think he was only in for, you know, the minimum amount, probably four years. Uh, from what I understand, he got in some trouble when he was 17 or 18 and kind of had a choice to make whether to join or get locked up or something and (laughs) and so he joined and yeah so he was tail end yeah of vietnam but he's he's still i mean 
I don't know how many years ago that was, but he's still very proud that he was in the Marine Corps. He's yeah. They've, they've never made it easy to be a sniper anywhere. So yeah, whether he was in Vietnam or not, he he, yeah. he, he kicked ass given what he was given. I'm sure yeah, he. Yeah. From what I understand, he was a badass with, back in his day. But yeah, it's it's one of those things with him. For years, he didn't really talk about his military service at all, and I I would have never even thought of him being in the military. And then as he got a little older, and he kind of started to kind of show more pride about it. And he has a hat that says, you know, Marines and it's cool to see that he's prideful of it. But for years, it's like, it was never even mentioned, which yeah. I get that too. I mean, not everybody wants to talk about the stuff they've done in their life, but, and he, I mean, he didn't even fill out his VA paperwork for years and years and years. Oh, and he finally did. And it was a timing, perfect timing thing. He ended up getting cancer right after everything was ready paperwork was filed yeah. so the va has taken care of him for the past gosh i'm trying to think how many years it's been but he had he had uh, kidney cancer and they had to remove his kidney and they got all the cancer out and then heart issues after that and a lot but the va has been been amazing for him they mm-hmm. really have yeah i know they sent him to seattle yeah it was seattle the va over there for a surgery yeah. and it's cool have you, have you heard of the fisher houses do you know what those are mm-hmm. yeah yeah where they put the families up yeah. yep. so my mom going on a tangent here about it but uh, they, it was kind of an emergency thing straight to Seattle and when he went and they, my mom went too. And I was worrying like, where the hell's my mom going to stay? She can't sit in the hospital all night. And so I booked a flight and flew to Seattle to be there with her. And turns out there's this Fisher house that's right next to the hospital. And it was a beautiful place. I mean, they let him do laundry and there's a kitchen and nice rooms. And I stayed there, I think two nights with my mom, make sure everything was good with her. She's safe. Yeah. And then I went back home. But yeah, it's kind of cool that they do that—the Fisher yeah. House thing. No, they try to help out when it. Yeah, they're, yeah. And there's a lot of people that, you know, I guess go unmentioned. You know, that are really wealthy that donate a lot to the hospitals, veterans' causes. You know, there's some celebrity that's involved with the Fisher House. And I'm trying to remember who it is. Huh. I want to say like Denzel Washington. It could be he's a legit guy. I think yeah. I can't remember, but somebody is, is associated, and they've donated a ton of money to that. Yeah. But it's cool what they do for families. I don't think we have one here that I know of. But yeah, probably not. I know they have them all over the country, but it's really cool that they do that for the families. Yeah. I guess they maybe put them in hubs. So, you know, like, yeah. Like, because yeah. Idaho's supposed to have the, the VA here. I've never been, but I, I, it's got a great reputation for what I've heard from people. That, mm-hmm. But it may just not be big enough to have. Yeah. You know. Yeah, because yeah, Seattle, Seattle's much bigger. Yeah. Now, the VA here is, I mean, they just expanded the. Uh, the parking garage made a parking garage and stuff, and mm-hmm. they built some built. I mean, because a lot of veterans are coming here. Like every day, I meet someone who's from you know like San Diego, you know, who's a Marine or something like that. Like huh. a lot of vets are really coming here because it is a good VA, and the VA is trying to compensate for that mm-hmm. thing. They're growing, and I mean, right now it's not easy. Like I called in June for an appointment, and now it's in December 11th, so six months to get into my appointment. Well, I've, I've heard I've heard a lot of vets and, complain about the way it, the VA works. And another complaint I have, which people don't bring it up enough, is that I mean, it's, it's you know, if you want to know what social health care looks like, your primary doctor is a resident. They are not a subject matter at this point. They are a general practitioner who is a resident. So if you say like all my symptoms that I was having, that's off a whole lot. She says, okay, this is in June. Come in September, I'll test your thyroid. I was like, you know what? Fuck this. I went and saw my civilian doctor and I told him what she said. And he just like laughed. He's like, yeah, the residents, they just don't know how many experience yet. He's like, 
because the, the the symptoms I read him off are completely different. He says, "Oh, you have blast injuries. You need to be on TRT. You need an SSRI just to get you that boost, and then get off of that." But he's like, "You have a testosterone deficiency. Your hormones are off. Here's what it looks like in your brain right now, and I will test your thyroid just because." And it was fine, you know, like. But after everything I told her to be like, yeah, I'll test your thyroid September. I think that's no, don't everything else. You're yeah, it's fine. You know, so that it is upsetting too. So the VA, I'm glad that now you can go outside of the VA to get help. Mm-hmm. You know, you can use that to go get, you know, somebody outside who's ex- an experienced doctor. Well, know? I guess the VA here from what I heard through my, my dad was they had a COVID outbreak here recently. Yeah. So there's either people who are saying, screw that. I'm not going to the VA or they're not allowing like, non-elective stuff or elective stuff and and things like that. But cause my dad, he's on dialysis, but he doesn't go to the VA for that. He goes to a clinic for that, mm-hmm. but he still has appointments within the VA that he hasn't been going to because something to do with COVID. Yeah. No, they're really <coughs> yeah, tight about it, which is good. I mean, I get it. Um, but I mean, we're all going to get it. I, you know, I think I did get it in February cause I was actually looking up some like side effects and people saying, yeah, one of them is like if you have like chain, pain in your chest when you're trying to be active for a few weeks after. Because in February, I had the cold for like three or four days, like three days. It really was. I, it was kind of bad. But but for the next eight weeks, six to eight weeks, every time I warmed up in my garage to work out, my chest hurt. My lungs hurt. I was like, and they hadn't, they hadn't felt that way since I was like eight or nine when I had pneumonia. And so I never get that from a cold or a flu. So I think I did get it in February. Because I've read a lot now about people saying that's a side, that's an after effect is that chest pain when trying to be do something physical active for a while. Sorry, lung pain, not chest pain. So I think I did have it. It's hard to tell though because I know so many people who say that they think they had it, and most of them probably haven't. Maybe they have, including myself. I think we, my whole family, had it back in March or April. I think it was. But I mean, you can go get the antibody tests. But now they don't know how long the antibodies last. Yeah, maybe so six months. Yeah, it's it's a whole crazy thing. <clears throat> and I know a lot of people who've had COVID tested positive, and it's all different symptoms, different. Some people don't even know they have different it. recovery time. Some, yeah, some with no symptoms. Yeah, that There's, was a who was it? it was someone at the gym was just telling me about about uh, she she played soccer at BSU, and I guess she had it, and so did like a third of the soccer team, and no one even knew they had it. When I mean, they're young. They have they're outside, the football they're playing soccer. Too. Yeah, they're young, they're healthy, they probably got their aerobic system could probably shrug mm-hmm. half of them. Yeah, off. I guess no one even knew they had it, and they, but they all tested positive. That's been happening in college football a lot recently. There's a okay. lot of teams that have, including BSU, their starting quarterback tested positive, and from what I hear, he had no symptoms, but they couldn't let him play, obviously. Right. And it's it's a weird thing. It's I know a lot of people, most people I know have had it are within the post office, <laughs> which, I mean, that's another thing. Like, I was having this conversation with my wife. I'm in and out of these post offices all day seeing people, multiple people. I'm like, I don't know how I have not been exposed to it because I've been working through this whole thing. Um, but I've been, other than the time back in March or April, I've been very healthy. And I take all the precautions necessary. I use my common sense and try to do the best I can. But I'm around people. And I also share trucks with people at work. And yeah. it's... As far as I know, we haven't had any drivers who've come down with it, which is amazing. We have over 50 guys just out of our Boise yeah. branch, but it's, I don't know how I haven't at least been exposed to it. <laughs> it's, it's crazy. Yeah. I think that's where I've been kind of fortunate, you know, maybe for Justin <clears throat> too, since like we're both retired 
<laughs> you know, I was medically retired. I mean, so we both, at the end of the day, it's like if we had to leave our jobs, if we had jobs, it'd be okay. Cause at least we have that to, you know, look, you know, we still have our retirements, mm-hmm. you know, um, unless the government takes that at some point too. Like, I just, I feel so I bad for people who like small businesses that have Dude, had to shut down. I just and- read $200 billion loss <clears throat> in small businesses while other, you know, Amazon, Walmart all grew mm-hmm. $200 billion loss. Yeah. And it's like, I like that meme. I just, I read a while back, like, um, if you have someone in your household, you need to support or feed your job is essential. Yeah. You know? Well, like, yeah. seriously, I, I get the, everybody trying to be safe and shut stuff down, but it's like these people's businesses who they didn't do anything wrong have to, they're going to lose their business. I, it just makes me feel sad for them, but I don't know. I think we'll get through it. I've said that from the beginning. We, People are resilient. We'll get through it. Yeah. Yeah. What this is doing, I think, is it's moving the, it's splitting the middle class more. Mm-hmm. You know, where you used to be able to maybe work your way up there and mm-hmm. stay there. And now, yeah, the Amazons and the Walmarts and those are, they're doing better because what they do is, is what people are, you know, what people are demanding or paying for or whatever. But then a lot of the mom and pops, yeah, they, they just can't stay afloat. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that happens a lot with sort of, like gig workers and stuff like that too, mm-hmm. you know, and yeah, and and it really, I think they're gonna ten years from now they're gonna write the first history of this, <laughs> and they're gonna figure out there's a lot of weird shit that we just didn't know. Yeah, and I'm sure in 1918 it was the same thing, you know. Yeah, I it wasn't right. like people said, oh, it's coming through Philadelphia. It was like, oh crap, here we go again. Or, yeah, you know, yeah. Why is Grandma sick and our two year old? And we're gonna find out that there were different strains and they had different physiology. I think you're right. Ways, and, you know. Um, yeah, it's. It's a weird thing. It's a weird time. I mean, for everybody. And it also has divided the country more and more with whether people want to wear a mask or don't want to wear a mask. It became a political thing versus thinking about the best thing to do. Yeah. (laughs) And just just try and keep everybody safe, which I don't know. It's like I'm I'm one of those people. Like if someone's hardcore, want to wear a mask all the time, go for it. That's fine. Yeah. But I also... Like, I guess I am kind of judgy. I'll see somebody in a store without a mask. I'm like, what are you doing? Well, like the time, <laughs> you dick. Yeah, I, yeah, I went and write it the other day with the kids. And I was like, Vivian wanted them. They both wanted to wear them because they have them. From, you know, mom, their mom got them some and they're really cool. Like, you know, Power Rangers or whatever. And so they want to wear them. I was like, don't. I was like, if you don't want to, you don't have to. If it makes you scared or comfortable. So my son, he's just turned three a couple days ago. But he was, you know, he was two at the time. Right. And. And he walks in, he wants to put it on. He's like, all right, I put it on for you. So I'm putting it on them as we walk in. And I look up and there's this guy who actually looks like a veteran, though he's dressed with a shitty beard. <laughs> and he's looking yeah. right at me, shaking his fucking head like I'm a piece of shit. For putting a mask on your child. Yeah. That's- and he's obviously, he's not wearing one, obviously. Um, and I'm like, dude, I get you have an opinion, but don't push that on me or try to judge me, you know? Because actually, like, I actually didn't even care if he really were born or not because his age. But he wanted to wear it. Like, dude, like, yeah. I was so mad about it. I wasn't going to, like, start, you know, I'm, I'm a classy bitch, you know. <laughs> I'm not going to start anything in front of my kids and be, I'm not white trash, you know. I was like, man, if they weren't here, I would just let that guy have it. You know? <laughs> like, it's, it, I just don't get how something that's involving, like, public health can divide people so much. Exactly. It's, yeah. and that's, that's with everything. This whole, Whole year has been insane with division and stuff like that, but I, I also don't think it's as divided as people think. Right? People can get along. No, I, I think there's a lot to be. There are there are groups of people or or whatever that stand to make a lot of to benefit. I, I shouldn't say money, but 
to benefit a lot when they see when there are Americans out in the streets paintballing each other or screaming at each mm, other. Yeah, I mean that's Putin. That's for that matter. Not the media is doing this. I think we blame too much on the media, but mm-hmm. they certainly benefit. Oh yeah, they get more people. You know, they get more eyeballs on their website. They get more yeah. ad revenue and all that by all this division. And there, are, there are there are other groups of people who generally benefit from inducing this kind of chaos. Yeah. Yes. Um, and we all lose. Yeah. Really. That's you know? all. Um, yeah, we give into it. We're because if China and Russia really are promoting this in any way if they're helping at all like i i couldn't say i know of any proof like i heard alex jones say it right <laughs> that's that's a reliable reason like china and russia you know want this to happen so they're in in a way instigating it to divide help divide us more and make us a weak country you know so that's kind of what he was saying and i was like it makes sense i can't say that it's absolutely true that what do i know you know but yeah it's i don't know it's it's a crazy time yeah so I guess we'll circle back. So after the Marine Corps, how long were you in the Marines? Um, I, so I was enlisted for four years, but my fourth year I was at um, another prep school, the Naval Academy Prep School. I got uh, I got a nomination to go there. So um, which I think they take each of the service academies takes maybe 10, 20, 30 enlisted people a year, maybe more now. I don't know, maybe less. Um, so most of the Navy guys who went like Navy nuclear power because they already had a huge amount of math. And then the Marine Corps was like, you know, an aviation ordnance guy, a couple of infantry guys, and kind of a, an eclectic group. So a year of that, and then four years at, uh, at Annapolis, and then got commissioned. And it was, uh, you know, that, that's another kind of those weird experiences you get, because it's, you've got what's on the surface. Everybody sees the midshipmen drilling and all that, and I guess it looks cool in lots of pomp and circumstance. But, you know, you come in there as an enlisted guy... One one thing I always said in my four years there was we need more staff NCOs because um, if I'm an 18, 19, 20-year-old, like, freshman, and it's the freshman juniors, it's the people two years ahead, it's their job to shit on you all year. And they mm-hmm. do it. And it's and a lot of it's stupid. Like, you run, you run out on the corner before lunch every day on the corner of the hallway, and you have to recite, you know... You now have 10 minutes till noon meal formation, uniform for noon meal formation is blah, blah, blah. The officer of the day is, the assistant officer of the day is. And then you got to go through the menu, you know, Toscarine salad, assorted dressing patches, all that silly shit, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have to say, you, you, you got to recite a bunch of shit, right? Meanwhile, you got these guys coming up and they're in their face and they're yelling at you. And is it, was well, it a sort of dressing packages or blue cheese dressing? <laughs> on, the, on one level, it's fucking ridiculous. And, and I mean, I'll, 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 you know, on the other, it's not about learning what the dressing packages are. It's about memorizing something and being able to execute it when people are in your face and trying to divert you from stuff and all that. Like another thing they do um, in your plebe year, they put you in this thing called USS Buttercup. Just, it's just a stupid name, but it's a space about twice this big, mm-hmm. and it's a damage control simulator. But it's like got a bunch of pipes like the inside of a ship. And they just, they can control when these things burst. So it's you and two other guys and it's teamwork. And you're running around with all these different things, trying to fix pipes or close valves. And then maybe the porthole bursts in or whatever. And meanwhile, the water level is going up and up and up. And if you don't have your shit together, right after about 10 minutes, you're like, 
You know? Oh man! And then they let you out, and you feel like an ass because everybody else is watching through the little window inside. Yeah. yeah. You know, that's what standing on the corner reciting the stupid noon meal menu is 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 getting you ready for. Okay. Um, I mean, it was annoying, and I hated probably most of my time there. Um, to the point that I don't feel that I used maybe all the opportunities as well as I should have. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, it's there for a specific purpose and it churns out certain kinds of people. Um, and the top 10% of what it produces are incredible. You know, um, I think I mentioned Chris Cassidy, uh-huh. the guy, the, the astronaut who just came back down from the space station. Uh-huh. This guy was, uh, he went into the SEALs. He did his first four or five years as a SEAL. Then September 11th happened. He was running on a tour aboard trying to flush these guys out. Went out and got his master's in math um, and got picked up for the astronaut program. And now he's the head of the astronaut office. He's had, I think, four, um, uh, what are they called? You know, where you, where you go up and you're in the International Space Station for oh, okay. months and months and months and all that. So when he's commanded the last couple times, he was the guy who went – an Italian astronaut went out on, on you know, outside of the station in his, on an EVA. Uh, his suit started to leak. And it's my understanding that the guy got a little bit freaked out. So Chris had to kind of throw all this shit on, get out there, and drag the guy back in. Mm. You know, so it produces people like that. Yeah. It yeah. produces a lot of just normal, decent people, too. <clears throat> produces some real egotistical assholes, as you might imagine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but they're ass kickers. What, I, have, I have a question. <laughs> yeah. Being never being in the military, what's it mean to get commissioned? I'm sorry, that's to become an officer, like a second lieutenant. Or okay. Ensign. Um, so the uh, like the army may be different. I'm sorry if I'm off on this, but the uh, like E1 through E3 is pretty much you go in at one of those ranks, uh, that, and and that's like your sort of trainee level almost. Like I went in as a 17 year old E1. I was the absolute bottom of the pile. But if you've got a little bit of college or something, you go in as maybe D2 or E3 mm-hmm. or you're in a specialized program, then non-commissioned officers are E4s and E5s. And then staff non-commissioned officers are like above that. And they're pretty much career people and, mm-hmm. and that. And then commissioned officers are the guys who, guys and gals who become like lieutenants or ensigns. Gotcha. They've got, typically they've got a college degree, not mm-hmm. always, but, and then they become like captains and majors and yeah. commanders and all that stuff, so. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And if you go in the army with a college degree, not going down the officer route, officer candidate school or anything, you come in as an E4 off the bat, um, which was weird and basic because you had guys who were E4s, you know, going in there and they're like, yeah, I have a college degree. And I get that now because at that time I would be like, why don't you just become an officer? But I get, because I would, I'm also that person. Like, even with the degree, I want to go in and get, be with the dudes first, be on the, be, yeah. be on the line, be with the guys. Because I can see how that has a lot more benefits at times than being an officer. Maybe get that time under you, and then you can appreciate how to be a good leader as an officer, I would imagine. Mm-hmm. Like, obviously, you know. Yeah. That bottle of water is for you, by the way. Oh, thanks. thanks. If you get thirsty. I always forget to tell our guests that they have a drink right there in front <laughs> of them. It's been the same one every time because always have it open. Yeah. So, did you get your MBA during or after you were in the, after your commission? I left active duty, so I resigned my commission at about the 12-year mark, I guess. Count my enlisted time because okay. it was the it was the late nineties. Things were real quiet. I'd gone and even to get to Bosnia um, took kind of stretching things because it was mostly reserve units that were going there. Okay, and so you're sitting in the states and you know you're doing stateside stuff, which is mostly getting ready for if there's ever a war. But it gets a bit 
repetitive and there are certain kind of personalities that love that and there are others that are like i i can't do this for long so i went out and i got my mba at the university of washington over in seattle um and uh got called up because we had september 11th kind of i we we just got to done ultra focus lens in the reserves which okay. is the the korean war exercise uh that happens every year so we had come back from that and it was like september 10th or something and we and i was a reservist then so I was in grad school full time, but then like in the summers I do reserve stuff and we're literally like cleaning off our gear to turn it in. Um, and we see this stuff happening on September 11th. And then they said, come back over to the G2. You guys are on like, you know, nine month orders and you're not going anywhere. And I mean, we weren't complaining. I, 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 <laughs> we were getting calls, probably a couple of dozen people a day who were like, hey, I just got out or I'm an inactive reserve guy. How can I get back in? Because mm-hmm. you can imagine people were. People were pissed. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's who you have. Our whole generation of guys that joined yeah. was because of September 11th. Yeah. We joined in like 2000. Well, like our friends up 2007. Yeah. You know, and we all joined up, you know, so it was just a few years after. It was, it was crazy. I've, I've talked about this before, but our we had a bunch of our friends all joined. I'm one of the only guys that didn't. And I've mentioned this before that I regret that. I kind of wish I would have just to provide a service for the country and stuff like that. But it's it's crazy everybody almost everybody that joined got out pretty quick there i mean there's what we have two friends that are still in i think yeah andrew's the one i forced to go in with me he was yeah. in college at bsu and he's still in and he's the one that's still in i was like i was like he's not gonna i forced him to go yeah. with me and he's the one that's still in he's a recruiter now and then luke, and luke luke hated it yeah you know, after he was out he's like fuck the army he got out and went back in <laughs> and then like and then realizes that life out here kind of sucks. He's like, man, fuck this. So now he's a green beret he's now. A green beret now. <laughs> yeah. So but, uh, now I think everybody else is out. And then we had another friend who was a Marine also, and he had a real rough deployment from what I heard his final deployment. And he, he was pretty messed up for a long time. He, from what I've heard, he's doing very well now. I haven't talked to him in a couple of years, but he, he had some, he had a rough time transitioning out of the military when he got out. Yeah. But, and I've, you know, I've, I've seen, all my friends kind of go through that transition and some do it more seamless than others, but everybody finds their way through it somehow or another. Yeah. It's kind of, so what were you doing? I, I vaguely know between like the Marines and starting the physics program BSU. I know you were in Azerbaijan, right? Yeah. So I, I went into the, um, it's called the state department, but if I say that here, Idaho has a state department. So it sounds like it's land management or something, but, it's the, it's the thing that Pompeo is in charge of now. It's the diplomatic corps. So we go and we, we staff all the embassies all over the world. And we, do, we, we handle foreign policy and diplomacy. I mean, based on what the, what the president wants and what Congress tells us to do. We don't go making shit up doing what we want. Okay. Um, and the, the application process for that is, is pretty wide open. You don't even need a college degree technically, although everybody I knew was a foreign service officer had one, but you take a written exam, a small percentage get asked to come and do like a day of oral interviews and assessments and stuff. And that's mostly like, are you objective? Can you work in a team? That kind of stuff. Um, and then at that point, they, they do your, your, your background check for a top secret, your medical and all that. And then if there's, if a space opens up, then they then they, then they take you in and you become a, a foreign service officer and you're working mostly in embassies for the next 20, 30 years. Wow. Um, there's the federal retirement system's real Byzantine and I had 
I found myself at age 50 having 30 years of federal time, which is where like you pl- you peak, like you get, I don't know what it is, a certain percentage of, of your of your salary gets added every year of service you have. Right. And then you peak, and then after that, it's only like a smaller amount. And I looked at that, and I looked at a lot of other things. But the number one thing for me, no question, was I want my kids to be in the U.S. for high school. I want them to have – they may not get the same, like, you know, level of education as they would going to some, you know, high-end international school, whatever. I, who cares? I want them to be in the United States, go mm-hmm. to American high school, get educated here, and at least have some roots and some stability, yeah, and be able to draw on stuff. How many, how many kids do you have? Two. They're both boys. They're ninth and t- <clears throat> excuse me, ninth and tenth grade in uh, they're at Eagle High now. Okay, so okay. well, kind of at Eagle. High I was going to say yeah. probably. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a weird path to navigate with the online school. I have two children in school as well, and my little one, kindergarten, they're going full time, and his school is literally right here in the neighborhood. Oh, that's it's, great. Which yeah. is amazing. I mean, we walk him five minutes, five minute walk. My older son. It would have been his first year of middle school, and we decided early on because he did really well with online last year when they went to online. So we talked to him, said, do you want to do online or do you want to go? Because we had a feeling it would be back and forth. And so we decided to keep him online. It's been working working fine. I mean, it's they don't get the attention that they get if they're there in person, and I think for some kids it's harder to learn that way, but... But he's he's doing all right. We're we're making it work. My wife has pretty much become a teacher, you know. And she actually <laughs> yeah. she actually left her job to do just that, and she also she she enrolled in school as well. But she's she's helping him. She's pretty much his home homeschool teacher now. But it's kind yeah. of a weird path to navigate with what's going on with yeah. schools. No, definitely. I, how old are yours, Kevin? <clears throat> uh, my son just turned three. My daughter's seven and a half. Okay. So she's in second grade, and it's changed. Like I feel like every week at this point. She was going two days a week in person, then doing two online. Then she was going four days in person, one online. And now she's back to three online, two in person. And the ones that are online, now it's like scattered throughout the day at weird times. And man, like, I mean, she goes to a charter school, so it's still better. I mean, there's only only 15 kids in those classes versus like 34, Mm -hmm. 35, 36, you know. So she still has the upper hand there. Um, But I feel... And I want, I want to be able to put in more, especially considering like I'm an upper division physics student. Like I can, I have a lot to offer, you know what I mean? And math and writing, like I'm, I'm not a below average intelligence person, but I'm saying like, but with the time, the time is, the time management is what's killing me with doing that. I want to help her more, but between my classes and what's expected of us to get done every day, attending the Zooms and then the homework and then studying for the exams, it's like it's hard to do all that, maintain a house and a healthy relationship with everybody in the house. And, yeah. you know, cause I think throughout the COVID thing, we forgot to take care of ourselves like in our, in our house, like to get out more. It became like business. It became like, we have homework to do. We got to make sure the kids are having fun, but we forgot to like, you know, do things for ourselves, you know? So yeah, it's been kind of a rough few months of COVID, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's throwing a wrench in the gears. For Look, everybody, yeah, dude. <laughs> no, I um, feel like some of it's going to stay this way, though. Not not necessarily because of COVID. I mean, if if we all took a happy pill tomorrow and COVID went mm-hmm, away, mm-hmm. there are you know there's a certain amount of businesses that are going to people going to keep working. For I think you're right, and all that you know, and and for better or for worse. I yeah, mean, I didn't realize how important it was to be able to get out and do stuff. Yeah, um, 
but we uh, we actually most of my class has been remote. But the teacher in one of them said for volcanology, she said because this place is like a volcan a volcanic uh, like wonderland because mm-hmm. um, you have this whole, that whole what they call the Idaho Smile it goes all the way up to Yellowstone. I mean, this whole place was just a a hellscape of volcanic activity mm-hmm. not too long ago. But um, she said, "Look, we'll do a we'll do a, a field trip." out there and see some of this stuff and get our hands on it. You've all got to socially distance. You've got to obey all these rules to, to BSU official trip. Mm-hmm. But man, I was like, this is, it felt like a breath of fresh air. And it was already cold. It was only a couple weeks ago. Yeah. Okay. You know, but I'm like, wow, I'm like outside with other people for a focused reason, not going shopping. Yeah. Or, yes. You know, I'm like, damn, I miss this. Yeah. You know, um, you took it for granted, some of the yeah. small things like that. No. What, what made you decide to go back to school? Like, what was... Because you... How long have you been retired? Uh, about three years. <clears throat> um, well, I think... Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm, in my, I'm in my early 50s. Mm-hmm. So, um, and people, people now are going to live 30, 40 years, right? I couldn't... We, we were lucky to have some retirement transition classes and stuff that we could go to like for the federal government. And, and this sounds super corny, but one big point they made was don't retire from something, retire to something. Mm-hmm. I mean, it sounds stupid, but, but it's incredibly true. If you're just saying, I mean, you knew guys, you knew guys in the army, you probably knew guys, you know, here who are like, fuck this. I'm done. I'm retiring. I'm going to go fish. And after about a month of fishing, they're like, damn, you know, that yeah. was fun when it was how I got away from things, but I can't do that for 30 years. Yeah. yeah. So for me, it was like if I'm able to leave um, when I did, and I had maxed out my 401k and all that other stuff, um, you know, if I don't have to work, then what do I want to do? Mm-hmm. And and um, where can I do it reasonably well? I mean, BSU's not cheap, but it's way, way less expensive than most state universities at in-state tuition costs. Mm-hmm. Um, and... This way, you're you're staying mentally active. But I mean, I, I, um, I barely passed physics two at the Naval Academy. We had to take. I was a history major, but we still had to take all the math and all the physics that you have to take here as a science major. You know, physics one and two, chem one and two, math through calculus three and differential equations. Mm-hmm. I did all that, and I hated every minute of it because I'm like, I'm going in the Marine Corps. I don't need to know the Laplace transform, or mm-hmm. you know some other electrical shit. I just need to know how to lead, you know, how to lead Marines and all that, which is an immature attitude. But, but for me, that was kind of what I was thinking at the time. Um, so I was thinking, what do I really want to do? If I, if I could do whatever the hell I wanted, it would be going back, get an advanced degree eventually in astronomy, planetary science, something like that, mm-hmm. and then see where I go with it. There's no pressure to go into academia and be a professor, which is kind of cutthroat getting a job. And getting tenure, um, there's no pressure to go into like say business or teaching or whatever. Yeah. So yeah, you don't have to. You can do this just because you want to better yourself and have an understanding of the universe. You know, when you understand what we're getting, we've been getting into, the universe really is at your fingertips. Like, here's how gravity really works. Ninety nine percent of people don't understand how mass really bends what falling really is like falling is not accelerating, right? The person accelerating is the person watching the person falling, you know, like just we have at our fingertips, some things that seem basic, but 
under another inner understanding into it. And I think that alone is that's why I want to do it. I was it was in Halebop where Haley came over his comment. I was between six and eight years old, it was in the nineties, and I had this like philosophical reaction to that. Like, holy shit, there's something bigger than all of us and something going out there is crazy. I have to know how this works. Yeah. And I was obsessed with physics ever since then. It's all I wanted to do. Like, this is my childhood dream was, you know, doing nerd stuff, astrophysics. It wasn't being like a, an army sniper. That just, that was causality. I wanted the, I was in, I was curious how I would be in the military, how I'd react to things. And when I got in the military, because I've always been a shy person, to make friends, just like I did in football in high school, it was by outperforming people. And by outperforming people, the causality, next thing I'm in the sniper section, right? And so... But I really lost myself at one point thinking that was me. Like, that's my ego. It's like, that's really not. That's just part of my experience in this planet, you know? And that really my thing is astrophysics and being a dad like that. I love having a family. You know, I'm not one of the guys that wants to, like, hang out and be on my own. You know, like, so I, like family dynamic and I like astrophysics. <laughs> Dude. Well, I think that's that's cool that, like... With the stuff you've done in your life, which yeah. has been quite a bit, you're still trying to learn stuff. You're still, that's, that's awesome. Yeah. I think though, people like Kevin bring something different though, because I like the people in our classes. I like the physics students. I like the professors, but there's a stereotype mm -hmm. and it's because a lot of people in physics, they peak out and they're late twenties, early thirties. And it's that kind of thing. It's mentally, it's incredibly difficult and incredibly intense. Um, and there's a lot of abstract thought and, you know, you're dealing with 10 times something in negative 23rd of this quantity, which changes the game. And when you think about it, you're like, that's ridiculous. But it's important to have people who've got a different background and a different perspective yeah. come in as well, because I think that they, they, they broaden things a lot. <clears throat> um, they, they, they give a different, they, they add a different point of view, but they also change the way that it's perceived by people. Mm -hmm. And one thing I picked up in the State Department, which kind of surprised me, was, I mean, image is important. You don't want it to be. You want it to be about who you are and who you stand for. But yeah. you can take the best thing in the world, and if it's poorly presented, it's going to fall on its face. It's just the way it works. I mean, yeah. I wish it wasn't true. but yeah. um, And so a lot of it, unfortunately, is presentation skills um, or, or you know, being able to, to effectively recast something, hopefully honestly, but into – you know, and I, and I know what I'm saying is kind of is kind of shitty, but I mean that's where it goes. You know, it's, yeah. No, it was it was weird, like going into like the astronomy groups and stuff like that. People like always look at me like, who the fuck is this guy? Like he doesn't belong here. And I was like, I'd always walk in and be like, what's up, nerds? Like <laughs> just like because it's it's you know it's just funny. Like we don't all have to be like obsessed with Dungeons and Dragons to be to have to have a common interest in something. We can all be different. I guarantee you there's a guy out there because the probability is high. There's someone out there who was a lineman in a college university who's probably studying physics right now, right? Like not everybody has to fit that certain stereotype. Yeah. And I think it's kind of interesting when we walk in there as older guys and can show people that because that when they're young, they're so impressionable. You've got 20 years old, they're young, right? And they still believe what they say in movies. So they think, so they're completely thrown off by like, whoa, what the heck? You know, like. So, you know, smart people don't have to be fucking non-fuckable people. Like, <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I don't know. Well, I, I think, though, I think one thing they're getting out of it, though, is they're looking at, they're looking at, hopefully, they're seeing people like us and saying, these guys are at a point in their lives where they can 
kind of do what they want. I mean, not yeah. completely, but, you know, they've got some control. And they chose to come back and study this. Yeah. There's got to be some value to what I'm doing here. I'm not yes. just in this field because it's what I was good at or whatever. Yes. Someone said I get a job. This is, people are fascinated mm-hmm. by this stuff, you know. So hopefully they're getting that. Yeah. Know? Yeah. I. Um, that's exactly my approach to it. There's nothing, when I get complacent, it's because I, it's when I don't agree with what we're doing in class. Like, hey, don't, at the end of the day, don't forget I'm paying your salary. Like, we are paying for this to happen. And and when I feel like my money is not being well spent, sorry, not my money, the taxpayer's money is not being well spent, I'm upset. You know, I'm upset about taking UF 100. That you can, I can be positive about everything. I'm a pretty positive person, but I did not get anything out of that other than having to babysit a group of kids who didn't want to do a final project. Which um, UF 100 did you? UF 100 is like a university foundations course. Yes. Okay. So, well, you, you could probably explain better than me because I, I yeah. didn't take that. I just read about it. I, yeah, I did the one with, with Dr. Jackson. So, and it was after I did wow. physics 204 and 205. And now this is like the cycles of the moon and stuff. So, it feels like you're kind of going backwards. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Because I was in there with 18 and 19 year olds again. Yeah. Because I, I started my class. I, I was so excited to get in all these classes. I kept on pushing off classes I was supposed to do when I was a freshman and sophomore. Like, I still need to take UF 200 and uh, visual arts. And now I'm scheduled to take both of those when I graduate. I'm taking those and senior seminar <laughs> together. Oh, so I keep on pushing off, like, the stupid classes. So I did. So anyway, I did that, like, in spring or fall or whatever. It was all young kids and looking up phases of the moon. Like, this is nuts. Like, this is crazy, man. Like. But they all thought we were there to talk about aliens because it says alien life, alien worlds. So the, the whole class was let down. They thought it was about aliens. That's why they're all there. But anyway, that wasn't worth the money to me. No offense to Dr. Jackson. It's just that I'm my, I'm not saying I'm like, I have a high intellect, but I've always studied this stuff since I was a little kid. So going back and sitting in a class doing that was just derivative of my younger self. It didn't do anything for me. And I babysit a group of kids who were not motivated to do a final project. It affected my grade. We're supposed to be getting A's in these classes, right? So the taxpayer paid money for me to sit in something that did not benefit me. You know, I tried to find a positive. And I've had multiple classes like that, right? I mean, you got to take them to make you more well-rounded. But I think it's really about the business of the school versus how do we make somebody more intelligent and get them out there in the world working, like doing something important, you know? How good are you class, like engineers? Like, I think this should be closer to a, um, like technical school. If you want to make a good fucking engineer, they need to be practicing while they're in school. You're learning crawl, rock, run, and you should be testing on your competency. If you fail, cool. Go back a week or two weeks and retest you. Cause I, with the intent of, I want you to be good at this and I want you to want to be good at this and I want you to succeed. You know, you want successful, intelligent, critical thinking people out there not just a bunch of people who can memorize take take exams and then just be still mediocre at best you know and i think the school system supports that model um and that's my biggest negativity about going to school is i'm almost it's difficult but i'm also not learning fast enough like i'm more i'm I'm more motivated than the pace of school is going you know after four years it's like cool i'll have touched the tip you know of what i need to be knowing um, that, anyway, that's my take on the college system right now. It's not all negative, but that's the biggest thing I take out of the negative of it. The positive is I am learning a lot. I meet new people. I like a lot of professors we've had. Um, I like the experience itself, you know, 
But pacing can be a challenge. Yeah, I mean, yeah. is it really? I mean, there's the math behind it all, and then there's the you know how much am I motivated in this course versus that one, and and stuff like that. Yeah, geoscience. I'm a double major now. I'm doing physics and geoscience. Okay. Um, and I'll probably do the geoscience degree first. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a, it's a very different like sort of culture or subculture, or whatever. And it, it, I almost like I, I I tease some of the grad students because I'm like. You're required to be, if you're a guy, you have to be from Colorado or the Midwest. You have to wear flannel. You have to wear Tevas. You yep. have to have a dog. You've got to have, like, at least two, like, North Face or other, like, <laughs> yes. you know. Um, and and for the for the, for the the female grad students, it's kind of similar. Yeah. You know, but it's different having all these grad students around. In a way, it's like having staff NCOs around. Like, the problem at the service academy is that you had 22-year-olds running things. 22-year-old midshipmen ran... 85% of what went on in, in, in a day, especially for the people who are in the younger classes. And what they and and a lot of the people who were running things were not necessarily super mature. Mm-hmm. For the average person to get into a service academy, and there are some incredibly talented people who go, but they've got to have been they've got to have been on the straight and narrow from about seventh or eighth grade. Like like, you know, excelling in two or three sports. Mm-hmm. And then one other thing, musical instrument or whatever, and then getting like pretty much straight A's and all the technical subjects and probably some APs. And then they got to get a senator or congressman nomination. And then they've got to pass all the other stuff. You know, so there's a lot of hurdles to jump through. And frankly, the average person in high school doesn't have the opportunities mm-hmm. to do that. You can't go work 10, 15 hours a week at the, you know, at Dairy Queen or whatever and still have the time. To excel in all the baseline shit you need to get in the service academy. Yeah. It's a shame because mm-hmm. they should be able to bring in normal kids. Mm-hmm. But because they don't, the 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 the, the social sort of spectrums maybe a little narrower. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where you need experienced senior enlisted men and women who can sit there and provide some advice. Yeah. Um, on how to lead people. And how to kind of get them going in the same direction rather than just yelling at them because they forgot the range of some Soviet missile. Yeah. Um, and I think that's kind of where we things change a bit. This is a very weird analogy to me, but in geoscience, because you've got a lot more graduate students because there's a graduate program at BSU. And so the directions take a bit of a different way. And physics, frankly, people are busting their ass to get through. Yeah. And it's a struggle just to stay afloat. Yeah. Um, and physics to me feels a lot like either you're busting your ass and getting an A or you're busting your ass and you get like a C. There's no real in between. Yeah. Um, you can't just half-ass your way. I mean, because you have to use so much brain power to get through some, a lot of the problems you're doing and you're in multiple classes at the same time. Yeah. This isn't just memorization, you know, um, like some other, you know, courses that are fun to take or other maybe majors. But because you have to, you can you have to remember some things, like maybe some equations, like oh yeah, like F equals ma. But really, you have to problem solve. How can I utilize this equation to find a, a and a value to put into this one, and then to put into a third one? But how to know which ones to use? You really got to think about what you're doing, you know. And so you have to use a lot of brain power. See how I'm trying to get to, yeah. And that matters though. A lot of a lot of people. My dad actually was a. I think he got his master's in physics. And this is kind of typical. He, well, he went in the Peace Corps, but then after that he went and got an MBA in, in, uh, in the Ivy Leagues. Because 
if you can handle that much math, you're you're typically kind of well off. If you can handle handle that much mathematical modeling and that much abstract mm-hmm. stuff, yeah. So it seems to be a, a, a you know there are a fair number of guys on like Silicon Valley or whatever who were physics um, either undergrads or maybe they had a master's and then they went into finance because some of the advanced financial modeling, which I think is a bit suspect, but still. You need you need a lot of math to be able yeah. to, to handle it. I was I was always horrible at math. I still am. It just my brain does not work that way. So science as well, which science not as bad because I find it interesting. Math I just don't find interesting at all. Oh, no, I, I was know. I always did really well in in any language classes, English, whatever, and history because I find it interesting. But when it comes to math and science, I was always a horrible student. Yeah, I think math. People that like math are just crazy. I only like it because I like it's like for me it's a game. When I solve something that they take three or four equations to get through, I feel great. Like you just won a, like a game or solitaire, or board game or a video game, like because you had to work around a lot. You had to try to break down why would I, why do I want to use for this? What am I trying to solve? Where do I need to start? And then if you learn something at the end, that's awesome. Like in science in general, like it's the learning of something or seeing it. You saw it yourself and then you did the work. But just the math by itself, I know I don't like because yeah. I'm in EM theory right now. And EM theory is all fucking math, dude. It's just a textbook full of equations. And you're like, cool. And you're just solving equations. And a lot of times, don't you know the context behind it. Like what are we really solving for? It's just the flux across, you know, the surface area of the sphere. You know, what's the... You know, and you're you're doing calc one basically the radius. You know, like what's the charge here versus this radius versus outside the sphere, right? Like yeah. it's just that's about as apl- applicable as it gets. And so that's yeah, a pretty shitty class. Um, but that you know it reminds me that it's not really math I enjoy at all. It's the what you get out of it, what you can use it for. Yeah, I I know my I was talking about my older son doing online school. His first semester was math and science. I can't help him at all, which sucks. I wish I could sit there and help my son do it. My wife, on the other hand, amazing at math and science and pretty much everything. She always excelled as a student. She's actually, she's in the house right now doing schoolwork. She's a student again, but he just started a second semester and it's English and PE. They have a PE online class, which is interesting, but they give him like like a certain amount of exercise he's supposed to do every week. And then he's supposed to create his own exercise. It's kind of cool what he's doing, but, but yeah, so now I feel like, okay, I can, I can help him, uh, help him a little bit. Cause right. I, I always did well. I mean, in high school, I wrote all my friends papers for him. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody'd come to me and they write this paper. And it's just something I always excelled at was, was English and stuff. Mm-hmm. But yeah. Not, not math or science. No, I, the only thing I guess when it comes to like writing that I excel at, it's actually philosophy. I'm super motivated to write philosophy papers mm-hmm. and I did well, you know, um, I was about just minoring in it just because, yeah, because I just like, like hey, thinking it, I like, I fucking, I just, it's just, it's just so intuitive for me to understand what they're talking about. Like I wrote a paper on, you know, for like, I really to the matrix, right. Cause that's, um, and determinism and all that stuff. And it was really interesting to like, see what I thought and then challenge that and write about that. Like, how I believe we like what kind of world we live in and why it may be different than the way I perceive it. Um, you know, cause perception is just, you're like, am I, am I somebody sleeping? And, and when I'm sleeping, I'm dreaming of being a butterfly. 
Or am I actually a butterfly in reality who's sleeping and dreaming of being a man? You know, like <laughs> you really can't say, you know, for sure. If you're in a computer simulation made by us 3000 years from now, that is so fast at computing that it is C, right? It's the speed of light. That's how fast it computes. And so that's why you can't exceed that or else you, you're, you're outside the system, right? So that's really interesting that, yeah, simulation is not, I can say here, like, I, I feel love, I feel pain, like my hands hurt, right? But if it's just written in the code, I don't know any better. Considering it's complex, 3,000 years in the future compared to where we're heading exponentially, it's not out of the question, you know? Actually, the hardest thing about believing that is that we'll survive that long. Like as a, as a race. Well, there's there's nothing wrong with getting a minor or something like that. And, and in many ways, it's a plus. You, you've seen some of the speakers we've had have done things like that. They made maybe they majored in physics and anthropology, or you know, um, I mean, to me, the biggest problem we have with science education. And here I am, the expert, don't even have my bachelor's. But I mean, I've seen this a lot overseas. Like one thing we consistently saw with the U.S. because as diplomats, you're dealing with the U.S.'s image overseas. You're, you're spinning to a certain extent things that we've done, decisions that we're making, because that's your job. That's, it's, but which of, of the U.S. government, you know, or, or what the U.S. is known for in terms of the federal government, this is probably a really easy question, but which one do you think is the most, like, admired department or whatever in, in, in the world? And, and, it, and it, it, this isn't actually just the U.S. government, but it's all the governments around the world. There's one thing that stands out that people hold head and shoulders above the rest. Almost everywhere. Was it education? NASA. Oh, oh okay. Because NASA's putting men on the moon, mm-hmm. exploring outer space. They've done a pretty good job of keeping their themselves sort of, yes, they're national, they're the United States, but, they, but they're, they're flying the, the, the flag a little bit less and, and sort of advancing mankind in that. And I think the problem that we have with science is that we hide too much of it behind this big wall of equations and bullshit. And, yeah. and I, I think we've had some we've had some really good classes. We've had some amazingly good instructors. I sure as hell couldn't teach physics the way these guys do. Yeah. But I feel like some of the some of the content is being lost inside some of the math. Yep. Because they're not looking at they're not looking at um Let's make sure you understand the difference between a fermion and a boson and why one can, ex- can, can have certain energy states and the other one can't. They're saying, here's the math that shows that. Yeah. And they're not really stopping and saying, this matters because. Um, and they don't have the time and they have a curriculum they have to follow and they're doing a hell of a job teaching the way they are. But if there was a little bit more time on that, um, I think they would attract more people. Yeah. And I think over time, if it was made a bit more accessible to, excuse me, the public in general, you know, like like a big one that I know lights people up in the scientific community is, we found another thirty super Earths, you know, that's what CNN says, and so now mm-hmm. people are like, holy shit, there's like planets just waiting for us to go land on them and live, you know, that's not what a super Earth is at all, but nobody says that, mm-hmm. you know, or the scientists may say that. But in between what the scientist says and the paper they write and the science writer for CNN who's on deadline and what CNN puts up there to get your eyeballs on the page, CNN or Fox or BBC or whoever the hell you want, Al Jazeera, there's a big, big disconnect. And, and, and that's something that's easy to 
show the split on. Now you start talking about stuff like, epi- um, you know, how epidemics work um, or, you know, really complex, complicated mm-hmm. shit where we don't really know everything. Yeah. Uh, you can imagine where, and, and if there was a way of making that more approachable and more understandable, because not everybody is dealing with physics needs to know how to calculate, you know, um, uh, use a, um, a harmonic integral to calculate a wave function. Not everybody needs to know how to do that. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I learned how I suffered. I'll probably never use it again. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, but it would be really cool if more people understood quantum tunneling which is this weird like phenomena but it's what runs everything that uses a laser you mm-hmm. know has a quantum tunneling device in it at one kind of, an, of one kind or another and that's the kind of thing that i think people would benefit from being more aware of mm-hmm. um yeah but not being talked down to yeah. yeah like like we talked about this a couple podcasts ago about politics how they talk at the third grade level or whatever What's wrong with thinking that the people that are listening can understand what you're saying? You know, why isn't why doesn't everybody know how the cell phone works? You know, why do we use gold in it? How do electrons transfer across? And, you know, by bridging, making the gap smaller and smaller and smaller towards almost width of electron, right? Why don't we understand how they work? It's because, like, I got magic in my hands. You take it for granted. It should be like a, I mean, you can't force it, but it'd be, it'd be cool if people took more interest in it. I was gonna say, I think most people just don't care. Yeah, it's not like it's not like you're like yeah. you know take this test on the phone before you have it, but like, yeah, it's just cool to know how this works and quantum tunneling in your phone as well, right? Mm-hmm. Like you can say it's faith based, but your phone fucking works, so quantum physics is real, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, um, yeah. I was gonna ask ask you how long have you lived in Idaho? Just about three years. <clears throat> oh, so not yeah. not too long. No, no. We we came here on um we come here about once every other year. We get these things called uh called home leave. You get a certain amount of time that you have to go back to the States. Because mm-hmm. if you're living in like okay, we're in like Namibia. Namibia is like every positive stereotype about Africa ever. It is an amazing place to live. But you maybe you want to go to vacate maybe you want to spend your, your leave for that year in like, I don't know, Kenya or the Seychelles or Mauritius, right? You don't necessarily want to come back to the States. But you do that for 15 years and you're out of touch with this country. Mm. Things change fast here. Yeah. yeah. And you got to be able to come home and realize that because otherwise I'm not really representing. It's not my job to represent like, you know, every single person in the country, but it is my job to understand the country yeah. that I represent. Yeah. And, um, you know, the State Department has had, they're doing a much better job now, but it used to be that you could go into a room full of U.S. diplomats and they were... They were white guys from the Ivy Leagues plus Georgetown because that's that's what the career attracted. Mm-hmm. You know, um, now it's much, much, much broader, which helps in a lot of ways, too. It's one of those organizations where having a lot of diversity actually means you can do more. Yeah. And yeah. you can and you can appeal to more people in more <clears throat> different ways. Um, and, uh, you know, that's that that's all about getting a job done. I, I know that people have very different feelings about should diversity be encouraged or forced or mm-hmm. legislated and all that. But this organization <clears> is one where it really matters. Okay, like, like an example I use is uh, I was an economic officer in, in Azerbaijan, which is um, the southern end of the Soviet Union, the former Soviet Union on the Caspian Sea. So my job was to deal with, um, was to monitor and report on Iranian political economic activity in Armenia, Azerbaijan, Georgia, northern Iraq. Um, 
as an economic officer, but my two colleagues were, one was a, uh, an Indian Muslim woman who grew up in Texas, hmm. and the other was a Cuban-American guy whose dad was Russian. Oh, wow. So we would go to meetings with just whoever around Baku, whether it was the, a government ministry or the Israeli embassy or, or some international organization, and they'd be like, you guys are from the U.S. embassy? Because you've got this woman who's got a, a, a female Muslim name, mm -hmm. and then you've got a guy named, you know, Alexei or whatever, and he speaks better Russian than all these guys who grew up in the Soviet Union. Yeah. You know, but but we were, because of the way we were, they would open up to us and talk to us yeah. a lot more. Yeah. You know, and, and when, when, you're, when your mission is getting information, but also being able to get the, the, the human nuances behind the information because you're dealing with hearts and minds, that matters. Yeah, I bet, I bet it does. Yeah, you, you gotta you gotta be approachable. Really well. It can't just be like black. Like you can't like the men in black walking into a place and just like tell us everything we need to know. Like, no, everybody's still human. Yeah, you gotta be able to form those bonds, those connections. And again, that's really a good point. Like we that. would do that. Um, I had been a in a peacekeeper in Bosnia when I was still in the Marine Corps. This is late nineties, and um, it got a bit weird. And I wound up. Um, I wound up as the operations officer for a multinational riot control unit, even though I had zero riot control experience. And this is typically like you've got, you're returning a bunch of internally displaced refugees to the town that they got chased out of. So you've got a million, you've got all kinds of shit show on your hands. Um, but a lot of what I would do, this is a whole bunch of NATO people. And the, the unit was run by the Italian carabinieri who are pretty good at cracking skulls when they have to, but, and a lot of what I would have to do is if there was like an American, say, colonel coming up, an army colonel, marine colonel, whatever, I'd pull him over and I'd say, sir, listen, you know, they, they're going to want five, ten minutes of where are you from? Oh, I've been in New York City, too. Or let me tell you about my family in Tuscany. And you know what? I, it sounds like bullshit. But if you sit there and you open up your laptop and you start clicking on PowerPoint slides saying, you know, Situation, mission, execution, admin, logistics—they'll do it, but they—they're turned off because mm -hmm. that's not how their their culture <coughs> works. Mm -hmm. And culture is touchy feely, and culture is not about putting rounds down range necessarily, but it's about putting yourself in a better position. Yeah. So the rounds that go down range are 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 you know are hitting the right place, mm -hmm. and 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 you're not having to go take the long way and, and lose <coughs> people. Yep. But a lot of it was just getting getting them on that same wavelength. Because I'd talk to the Italian guys, too, and say, hey, the Americans got 20 minutes. You know, They'd love to hear about your family in Tuscany. They really would, probably. Mm -hmm. But they got 20 minutes to go through 55 slides and run off and get in their, you know, in their Humvees and run the op. So, yeah. Wow. So a lot of it's just getting them <clears throat> And trying to keep everybody happy. <laughs> yeah. so, so what's the deal with the uh, – I haven't looked a whole lot into it, not as much as I should be. With the issue with like Azerbaijan and Armenia right now, like is that just is it cultural difference? Is it, is it political? Like what's yeah, what's behind that? Well, the earth cooled. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, Soviet Union was falling apart. Right, nineteen eighty six was Chernobyl, uh -huh. which by the way, it's a scary ass TV series, but that is a hell. Yes, of a I've heard. I've heard. Yeah, yeah it's a good show. It. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and they didn't exaggerate too much the the volunteering those guys did, which I was like, shit, I'm crying watching that. You <laughs> yeah. know. Um, so the Soviet Union was falling apart early nineties. Um, there's a place if you're, as you're looking at it, you've got Armenia, which is the first like Christian kingdom back in like 300 AD or something. And they're Orthodox. Mm -hmm. 
North of them, you've got Georgia. They're not really in the picture. Um, and then west of them, you've got Azerbaijan, which is a Shia Muslim country. There's only two Shia Muslim countries in the world, or majority Shia, uh, and that's Azerbaijan and Iran. But they are night and day. Even though they're neighbors, women, I don't want to turn this into like a chick hour, but <laughs> women in Azerbaijan dress like women in Paris. Oh. Um, it's it's a socially very liberal country. Mm-hmm. Um in the early '90s, so Azerbaijan, between these two countries, there's a there's a place called Nagorno-Karabakh, and it's a Russian word and an, like an Ottoman word. The Russian word is Nagorno, which means like in the mountains. Karabakh means the Black Garden, so it's the Black Garden in the mountains, which is kind of weird to start with. But yeah. to the Azerbaijanis, it's like their sort of ancestral birthplace. Oh. To the Armenians, it's a place where they had a lot of people settled. The Armenians underwent a genocide in 1915 at the hands of the Turks. So you get Azerbaijan, Armenia, Turkey. Okay. Mm. Um, and the Armenians lost a million and a half people, and it was some brutal, brutal shit. Yeah. Uh, especially because that was probably like two-thirds of the population then. Mm-hmm. So the ones who were left are in Armenia now, but they're like, they felt entitled you know, to, to Nagorno-Karabakh as well. End of the Cold War... The Armenians and the Azeris, despite being two federated states in the USSR, were fighting over that spot. And for one reason or another, the the Armenians wound up owning it. Um, There have been three UN resolutions telling the Armenians to get out. Uh, Azerbaijan is an upper-middle-income country by world standards. They've got a massive amount of oil wealth. But 10% of their population is what's called uh, IDPs, which is Internally Displaced Persons which means they were kicked out of where they lived in the 90s and had to resettle in different parts of Azerbaijan. And they're, they've always been, they don't get treated like second-class citizens, but they have never really been allowed to, they have this special status that gives them some benefits, but also doesn't allow them to settle down somewhere. Oh, So they're a bit like Palestinian refugees. They don't have a, from the government's point of view, from the Azeri government's point of view, that's useful because you got 10% of the population is pissed off and wants to go home. And the <coughs> other 90% is looking at them and feeling kind of shitty about the whole thing. <laughs> so the Azeris built up, um, over time, they built up a massive amount of, of, uh, of, of, um, of firepower. Um, and we would go to, they'd have defense expos in Baku when I was there. And we would go because it was kind of, well, because it was our job, but it also was kind of funny because you had the Russians and the Ukrainians during the war. You had the Israelis and the and the Iranians. You had us and you had the Chinese. You had all these countries that are kind of at odds with each other under one big ass, you know, ex- <laughs> expo tent. Yeah. And the Russians needed like, you know, cubic hectares to field all the tanks they had. And the Israelis would have like one booth about this size because... The only thing they're selling are little black boxes, but you push the right button, right, and all those tanks just stop. Wow. So it was it was cool seeing all that, but eventually uh, the Azeris just got sick of it, and they they felt that they had enough of a of an advantage combat wise. This was back in. There's always been fighting there. Um, okay, it's trench warfare. It's well, not even. It's just there's a line of trenches on the Azeri side. There's a line on the Armenian side, and they're sniping each other. And frankly, the young men who are in the trenches on both sides are not the kids of the politicians or the ministers, the business owners. They're the kids of 
the poor guy in the village. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're getting picked off. They're, they're, they were losing a handful a week on both sides Jeez. for the last 20 years. <clears throat> Um, I, sorry, I was eyeball deep in this. It's why it's yeah. like a... No, that's no, super you know, interesting. That's what I wanted to know. Yeah. I think it's something like most people here in America have no idea any of that's well, going on. They 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 don't know what's going on because the Azeris have enough senior people educated in the United States to know exactly when to play this. Mm. And about a month before our elections, they launched a major offensive into Nagorno-Karabakh. Um, and it got zero coverage in the U.S. Like, I'd have to get on BBC News to find anything about it at all. Mm. And um, what they did, the just to make shit really complicated, the Armenians are using Russian equipment, T-72 tanks, stuff like that. Armenia as a country is so poor that their border guards and some of their soldiers are still wearing, like, Soviet-era uniforms or, like, Russian uniforms Damn. and stuff now. Um uh, Azerbaijan was using a combination of Shia Muslim country using a combination of weapons that they bought from Turkey. So a Sunni Muslim power, um, Israel, because Azerbaijan provides half of Israel's oil <laughs> through a, through a deal that the older George Bush brokered in the 1990s. I know I sound like this is like QAnon stuff or something. But, <laughs> um, crazy. So yeah. they're using, they're using German, Turkish, and Israeli gear mostly against the Armenian army. And they, I feel, I feel terrible about what happened because I knew a lot of Armenian families, a lot of Azeri families, and these are their sons. Mm -hmm. Um, And what the Azeris were doing, um, you see this in like the Middle East sometimes at the big traffic intersections, you might wait three minutes on a red light. So there is a giant ass um, LCD that's showing you ads or movie trailers or whatever while you wait in your truck, your car, whatever. What they were literally doing is they were showing drone footage of Armenian tanks getting destroyed. Wow. I mean, talk about propaganda. Yeah. Talk about taking it to a... But what the Azeris did, the reason they won, they bought these these things called loitering munitions. Um, and those are... You probably saw these in the infantry, something similar. Like, infantry rifle squad used to be like... You know, 13 guys with a bunch of rifles and maybe one semi-automatic or one, you know, a saw or, a, yeah. or something or a BAR back in the day. Um, <laughs> and and that was it. And it was all about being, you know, quick and, and knowing your tactics and doing what your squad leader said. Now, at the squad level, often they've got these little deployable drones. So if you're wondering who's in that building, you know, guy goes in the back, throws a drone in the air and you look down. So these things are slightly larger than that. The Israelis and the Turks are specialized in making them. And do you, do you know what a BM-21 is? You, okay, these are like these these old Russian, it's like a flatbed. And it's got a big box in the back. And they turn the whole thing and they angle it up. And it's got 20 or 30 little ports and just launches a shitload oh, of rockets. Yeah, yeah. yeah, so it looks just like that. But okay. each one of those is a um, is what's called a loitering munition. And these are these drones. And they, they fly up in the air and literally like you go up and you start shooting at the other guy's trench line. And anywhere they fire back, you drop a drone on it. Boom, they're gone. And these things too, like they work against tanks because tanks have really thin armor on top of the turrets. Tanks are built to get shot at from the front or the side, right? Well, because if you put a lot of, of, um, of armor on top, they would turn like a, you know, like a semi. Yeah. So drones are made to go right through the top. And after three weeks of fighting, I think it was, 
the Armenians had lost over half of their tanks. Jeez. Which is which is a hellishly high number. Yeah. And their army was on the verge of collapse when they went in for peace talks. And the peace talks were broken by Vladimir Putin and a guy you probably haven't heard of called Recep Tayyip Erdogan, who's the president of Turkey. Okay. Um, who's a bit of a dictator himself. but And they've set things up now where um, for 25 years there was something called the Minsk Group. It was a U.S., Russian, and French like organization where they'd run back and forth and do diplomatic stuff and nothing would ever really happen, but at least people weren't killing each other that much on those, on that front line. These, that group was completely written out of the picture. The Russians stepped in on their own with the Turks and said, we want you guys to stop fighting now that you've kind of used up all your ammo and you're willing to stop for a bit because the Azeris had almost taken like a key city which controls access to the rest of Nagorno-Karabakh. They'd kind of gone all the way around, um, which in the mountains is not an easy thing to do. But, yeah. And we're cutting off like all these civilians in the middle. Mm-hmm. Um, and meanwhile, the Armenians were reduced to unfortunately having to do things like uh, like cluster bombing um, Azeri villages that had zero military use. Oh, wow. So you can imagine how that was going. Um, yeah. <clears throat> so now there's going to be something like 10,000 Russian peacekeepers there and a bunch of Turkish troops. Um, and that'll bring peace to the region, but it's not what anybody really wanted. Mm-hmm. It's going to bring Azerbaijan much closer to Russia, which nobody wants, yeah. except the Russians. Yeah, because yeah. they can be a proxy state for sure, because they're geographically closer. They have oil. They have, you know, they're, yeah, just setting that up for something in the future too. Yeah, I, I wonder, because if they're not really, if, you know, if Azerbaijan, I guess, isn't going to be satiated by it, you know, or is it, is it just going to continue? I would imagine, you know, because I feel like anytime there's land, like Israel, for instance, anytime where there's like, there's land that's important to your ancestors, I feel like it just drives a war that's not going to stop. You know, these are really Palestine, right? Like, do, I, do either of you ever think <clears throat> there'll be a time with no war? Is that, you think it's possible? We would have to wake up from this consciousness. Like our consciousness has to, um, we would need to, uh, sorry, evolve again from where we're at now. Like a consciousness evolved last time, right? A couple times originally from, let's just be hypothetical here. Sorry. But you know, if we're apes coming down from the trees and eating mushrooms, it was opening parts of our brains because the psychedelic response Next thing you know, we left the trees and then we're more out in the sun, start losing our hair, right? Cause we get more EV rays and our brain evolves. Like, yeah, I imagine it's happened. What? seven twice since then right humanoids anderthals and then now right that we've been this way for twelve thousand years i think right 14 something like that and i imagine that maybe when that happens again our perspective might change collectively i don't know that's a complete guess but dude without war it's like well who's going to profit you know pharmaceutical companies aren't going to win anywhere the manufacturer you know manufacturing companies of missiles and bullets aren't going anywhere you know I feel as long as you have those, someone's going to drive violence. <laughs> yeah. Look at look at slavery. You know, mm-hmm. until until what five generations ago it was accepted. Mm-hmm. Um, and now I don't. Th- I mean, good luck fighting anybody who thinks it's it's acceptable at any level, at least in the U.S. in the West, whatever. Right? It's a heinous, horrific thing. Mm-hmm. But if you look at what two hundred years of human history versus 
the tens of thousands that were before that. Our time without slavery has been this yeah. sliver, you know. Are we get to going to get to a time without war? Hopefully, but that may be, you know. We, Long after like us, Kevin said, "Yeah, we'll need a lot of shit." Yeah, yeah. I've, I've always, I've always thought about that because you know, the Vikings enslaved dudes from Britain. They went when they were yeah. invading, they'd kidnap them yeah. and they made them slaves. I mean, that was some bad shit. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so we're not even know. talking about just it being like a cultural, uh, cultural, like yeah, it is culturally sorry, a color thing, a cultural thing. Someone mm-hmm. from another culture is immediately inferior to you, and you can use them however you want. Mm-hmm. And that was the old way of thinking for any culture. Maybe other than maybe the Native Americans, they may have been the most well put together culture there was because they knew how to deal with stress, PTSD, everything. They they understood astronomy to a, a, a basic level enough to know the cycles. I mean, that's one of the few cultures I can think of off the top of my head that was pretty well rounded, and they were they could be savages when they needed to be, you know, warriors, right? Like. Yeah. So we gave them smallpox infection. Yeah, I was yeah. going to say, then, then we, yeah. came, we came in and give them diabetes. Ruined it all. <laughs> yeah, give, yep, give them high cholesterol and fucking just fucked up a, <laughs> yeah. a whole race of people, you know, like, damn. Well, shit, we should probably wrap this up. Oh, yeah. I didn't it's that. almost five. All right. But so, thank you for coming on. Uh, thanks for listening to me for. No, you're. Oh, yeah. It's fun. I keep telling Kevin this because. In the beginning, all the guests we were getting, I was finding people and inviting people. And then, like, the first one was Morgan. Mm-hmm. And Kevin's like, I got this friend from school. And I was like, all right, I don't know the guy. but me. And he turned out to be awesome. And then so far, I think you're the third one that yeah. Kevin's brought in. Everybody's been awesome. So, it's cool. Yeah. Yeah. I know but, cool people. No, you've – and that's the other thing is he'll tell me he, – like, he told me a little bit about you. And I'm like, well, he sounds really interesting. And I'm always thinking in the back of my head, like, I hope this guy that Kevin thinks is so interesting doesn't come in and just a total dud. And <laughs> you did not disappoint, so you, it was cool. Well, the Gorla Karabakh got me off on a tangent. But no, yeah. it's it's cool. I, I think it's cool to learn about things like you were just what you were just talking about. I had no idea that's been going on yeah. ever. Me and Jake on our very first podcast <clears throat> with uh, Spencer, we talked about how what we all like all three of us sitting down, how much we love history. Yeah. It's like we just like that's why that was really cool because we were all talking about how much we like love like mm-hmm. talking about and learning history from somebody else. We we're talking to them yeah. because yeah, and I, I like to learn about things that I have no idea about from mm-hmm. somebody who knows what they're talking about. It's yeah. really cool. Yeah. So well, I don't know if it even counts as history. It's like two weeks old. Yeah. You know? well, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, but, I mean, no, like, I know yeah, it's yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 yeah. cool. So yeah, thanks for coming on. Thanks for giving up your Sunday afternoon. Heck you know? Yeah, it was. This is what we do on Sundays. Yeah. <laughs> I think, but I don't know if it's next week or coming up soon. We're going to be doing one with a guy who doesn't live here. So I got to figure out the whole zoom thing and all that, which yeah. Kevin's going to have to help me with that. Cause I've, yeah. I've, I've actually, believe it or not, never done a zoom call, <laughs> <laughs> even with what's going on in the world right now. I've never yeah. done one. So I'm gonna have to learn it. Yeah. It's fun. So, well, cool. It's pretty straightforward. I think the hardest part is recording. Yeah. That that's what we need to figure. I guess yeah. there's like a paid paid plan or version of Zoom where you yep. can record, but there's other things you can attach to do it. The guy who we're doing it with sent me some link for recording it. I don't know. We're gonna figure it out. Yeah, we always do. Yep. This this whole thing's been just play it by ear, learn as we go. A lot of YouTube. Yeah, learning off YouTube University and mm-hmm. <laughs> doing the best we can. So yeah. yeah. All right. Well, Justin, thank you. Hey, thanks for your time, guys.